Hello, everybody. Your old pal Justin Robert Young here. I have a little treat for you guys. This is a little bit out of the norm, but we do have a brand new program that is debuting this week in the Dog and Pony Show audio family. We've all worked on it uh, really hard over the last few years, but if you enjoy World's Greatest Con, then I think you're going to enjoy this. It's called Don't Explain, and it's hosted by Will Saddleberg. The premise is this. Every eye-rolling trope that you've ever experienced in any kind of movie, it started somewhere. And at that time that it started, it was probably pretty brilliant. Watch the messy path from an initial idea to something that we all know by heart on this season of Don't Explain, where Will takes on the rock star biopic. From Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross, oh so many years ago, all the way up to Elvis that just came out this summer, we have the entire story of a genre that is so parodiable, a parody almost killed the genre. I'm going to give you the first episode of it right now. And then when you're done with that, you can get episodes two and three on their own feed, which can be found anywhere that you find your podcast. Just search for Don't Explain. But enough of my yammering. Here we go. Episode one of Don't Explain. Every cliche, every eye-rolling trope, from every story you've experienced in every format began as an innovation. First thing we better do is split up and search the school for clues. Oh, I have a bad feeling about this. Any last words? You and what army? But like all evolution, the path to the present is uglier than we want to remember. Movies are no different. Battered egos, big swings, easy money, and glittering glamour. The past is funny. We glorify our hits and forget our misses. It's easy to fall prey to it. To know the real story, we have to study, observe, spare no feelings. This podcast will do just that with the film genres and tropes that you and I love to watch and love to complain about their predictability. We start with a genre that, without an action scene or a superhero, grossed over a billion dollars eventually owning itself to perfection and massive financial and critical success. This is Don't Explain. We're on a quest to map the entire genome of movie tropes, appreciating the cliche by recreating what it looked like when it was young. First steps, massive failures, and ultimate glory. But let's start here. Live from the Kodak Theater at Hollywood and Highland in Los Angeles, California, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences invites you to the 78th Annual Academy Awards. It's 2006, Hollywood's Golden Night. Jamie Foxx is on stage, preparing to hand off the award for Best Actress. It's late into the night, nearing the end of the ceremony. Great dame. Here are the nominees for actress in a leading role. 
I'm sitting in my parents' house, watching the Oscars in our living room. I'm 10, and I love movies. Building my own film festivals out of DVDs and VHS tapes on hot summer afternoons, slowly badgering my folks into letting me watch R-rated action flicks. At that age, I was starting to watch pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Eventually armed with summer movie guides and year-end lists, I dove headfirst into the established film canon. The names of directors and writers became just as important as the actors on the DVD cover. But we aren't there just yet. All I'm working off right now is my parents' collection and whatever happens to be on cable that night. Still, even at that young age, I'm noticing something happening on stage. Jamie Foxx reads off the nominees for the award. And finally... And the Oscar goes to... Reese Witherspoon, walk the line. Oh my goodness. Never thought I'd be here my whole life. Growing up in Tennessee. Um, I want to say that... He hands it off to Reese Witherspoon, winning for portraying June Carter in Walk the Line. It was no coincidence that Jamie Foxx is the one presenting. A year earlier, he'd won an Oscar for playing Ray Charles in Ray. One A-list actor handing off an award to another A-list actor for portraying a musician in a critically adored biopic. Even at 10 years old, I could tell this is something special. This isn't a coincidence. This is a pattern. Movies about musicians have always drawn me in, but there's something about the story of a rock star that works unlike any other. I watched Walk the Line the same way I watched most movies back then pulling it from my parents' DVD collection on a rainy afternoon. I loved it, and it would push me to watch any similar movie I could get my hands on. You don't need to watch many Rockstar biopics to learn the pattern. These movies are formulaic to their core. A great lead role in a movie that can't quite keep up, following someone destined for greatness from their humble beginnings, through heartbreak, hardship, and addiction. And with the biggest, loudest performance you can. You know the script. But wait, where did that script come from? Plenty of films are formulaic, but that formula has to start somewhere. What is it about rock stars that keep us coming back to the theater again and again and again? It's a question that has dogged me since I watched those Oscars more than 15 years ago. And I think I've cracked it. These aren't your average biopics about doctors or war heroes. When I say rock star, don't think musical genre, but rather the kind of person that deserves this sort of movie treatment. They are legends, and this is their story. In this series, I'm going to dive deep into what the rock star biopic formula is, how it developed into its current day state, and where it's headed as all of your favorite stars of yesteryear get revived on the big screen. Three episodes, three movies at a time, and it all starts with the groundwork built by three landmark films. One, a dour debut from a Motown icon that appears to despise the artist it's honoring. One, a competent journey punctuated by a massive tragedy ripped from the headlines. One, a barely fictional underdog story where a real rising star plays himself. Lady Sings the Blues, the Buddy Holly story, 8 Mile, the DNA 
of the Rockstar biopic. From Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is Don't Explain, an exploration of the film genres we love. I'm Will Saddleberg. Ladies and gentlemen, hi, and welcome to our show, okay? No, dear, that's not it. You're off your mark. I'm off my mark? Well, isn't this where I'm supposed to be? I doubt it. But why? Well, for one thing, you're standing in three feet of water. No. It's 1971, and things could be going better for Diana Ross. She's a year out from leaving the Motown group that brought her to stardom. And although her first solo record produced some solid hits, her follow-up second and third albums failed to break through to a wider audience. You have to wonder if she's reconsidering her choice to leave the Supremes, a group that was so driven by Ross's star power, it was renamed Diana Ross and the Supremes three years earlier. But she had been in the group for 11 years when she gave her final performance, and she had the mighty weight of Motown Records behind her back. Still, there's no doubt that, as the 1970s kick off in full swing, Ross has to be questioning how she can get back on top of the world of R&B. Thankfully, she had a couple of moves left in her back pocket. One was a variety show, Diana, which would air on ABC in April of 1971. Not only would it introduce a wider audience to her as an individual outside of her previous group, but it features a guest appearance from the Jackson 5. The other, of course, was a pivot into Hollywood. That special was just the beginning of Ross's on-screen appearances. Two weeks before Diana aired on TV, Billboard reported that she would be starring as Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues, an upcoming biopic about the late great singer. This wasn't Ross's first brush with Billie. In fact, the first time she had spoke about the legendary jazz singer was the reason she landed the role. Quote, just listening to Lady Day brings sadness to me, and I'm trying to find out everything about her. I want to sing about blues and sadness, a natural part of life. I'm trying to find out the real psychological reasons Billie Holiday gave up and took to drink and drugs. That quote, given in an interview with Look magazine, was enough to convince the team behind a film project about Billie Holiday that she was right for the role. There were other contenders, of course. Diana Sands, Abby Lincoln, and Diane Carroll were all up for the role at one point or another. But when producer Jay Weston read this quote, Ross became the only actor worth hiring. Weston himself had a long history with Billy, having been trying for more than a decade to get a film up and running based on the autobiography of the same name. Holiday herself had downplayed the truthfulness of the book she co-authored, calling it, quote, not particularly true, but it didn't matter. Holiday was a name as recognizable as any from 20 years earlier, a lifetime in the music industry. A figure who had risen to a legendary status on the power of her voice alone. A black woman who made a name for herself before the civil rights movement, before the birth of feminism. Billie Holiday was a fading icon. And it was only right that a current icon, if not one who took her place in pop culture, portray her on the big screen. Biopics had been around for more than 50 years at this point, but the rock star biopic was still in its early years. Since bigger-than-life musicians hadn't shown up in modern times until the 1950s, with the Beatles effectively solidifying what we think of as pop stars today. 
Hollywood really had to wait for a legacy to be built by these types of figures before it could make movies out of them. Lady Sings the Blues uses pop stardom to its advantage, and not just when portraying the life of Billie Holiday on screen. The film is leveraging Diana Ross, Motown's biggest success story, to draw in an audience. The thrill of seeing a legendary figure in the music scene portrayed by a contemporary will stick around for years to come. Ross's casting was officially unveiled to the public in Jet Magazine on July 15, 1971, with Motown and Paramount Pictures entering an agreement to finance and produce the film. Immediately, the decision was controversial. One Jet Magazine reader wrote in to call the casting, quote, ridiculous and an insult to Billie Holiday. Ross was an inexperienced actor, though she was able to center her emotions through the singer's music. She worked 41 out of the 42 days of production, relying on her director and castmates to help guide her performance. In the end, anyone who doubted her was wrong. Indeed, even critics who didn't enjoy the movie found Ross's performance undeniable. Vincent Canby of the New York Times called the movie itself bad and yet praised Ross as, and I quote, an actress of beauty and wit whose limitations were those imposed on her by the screenplay and direction. Oh, I can sing anything, shoot. All right, what you know. But he doesn't like me. That ain't got nothing to do. I can handle him. What can you sing? I can sing all of me. Hey, Jerry, I'm sorry, bro. Just gone. All of me, man. You ain't never heard this like this. Church, take it home. That's a friend of mine, man. I didn't. You gonna love it, Jerry. You a good person in your heart. You know you gonna love it. I, okay, okay. Let us sing, sing. If we're being honest, the critiques of the film are fair. An exciting new generation of directors who created far more realistic movies have arrived on the scene by this point, but it's not quite in full swing when Lady Sings the Blues enters production. The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, 2001. These are films that are starting to revolutionize the state of filmmaking, but it hasn't spread throughout the entire studio system just yet. Hell, The Godfather comes out just seven months before this film. Plus, this is a Motown production, the company's first attempt at producing a major motion picture. There was no way this was going to be as experimental, as risk-taking, as daring as it needed to be to stand out nearly 50 years after its release. Then again, The Safety of Lady is a hallmark of the genre today as well. Instead, what appears on screen is a film that feels, at times, markedly old-fashioned. Set throughout the 1930s, you get a sense that you're watching a film made 20 years earlier than its actual production date. No matter how safe it plays, there are some high spots in Lady Sings the Blues. A stark black and white opening credits montage featuring the arrest and jailing of a withdrawn holiday, as well as an attack from the KKK during Billy's tour throughout the South, both stand out as set pieces among what is, unfortunately, a fairly routine biopic before routine biopics were the norm at least in terms of the filmmaking process. Lady's point of view, however, does find its own unique style, though not for the better. These days, biopics are generally seen as a celebration of the life of a musician. Even when films like Walk the Line are unafraid to dive deep into the mistakes, misdeeds, and tragedies of its star's life, the film always, always feels like it's on the side of its main character. 
Even at a low point, the story is sympathetic. Not so here. There's this casual sense of cruelty running throughout Lady Sings the Blues. It's not like this is a film that feels contempt for its audience, but it seems unwilling to cut its heroine a break. From the start of the film, when Billy is a victim of sexual violence almost as soon as we are introduced to her as a character, her life is nothing but heartbreak. She is thrust into a world of hard work from a young age, looked down upon for her race and sex, and falls into addiction nearly as soon as her big break arrives. Well, there is one personal victory, her performance at Carnegie Hall. But even then, the film can't help itself. Immediately after she gets off stage, newspaper clippings reveal the truth about Billy's life. This moment is all she has left before her death. It's a difficult experience, bordering on relentless at times with just how dark her life gets. And it's something that has largely been left behind in modern biopics. I swear I won't call no cop if I'm beat up by my papa. Ain't nobody's business if I do. And sure, Billie Holiday's life was difficult. There's no doubt about it. And I would argue that showing her pain might be Lady's biggest contribution to the modern rock star biopic genre that it birthed. But it's possible to approach this sort of story with a sense of compassion and care. It's hard not to compare Lady Sings the Blues to Selena, a film that put Jennifer Lopez on the map and cemented her as one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. There's no doubt that Selena's life was filled with hardships, leading up to her murder in 1995 when she was just 23 years old. Both her and her family experience countless setbacks portrayed on screen during her biopic, but it's handled in a way that balances difficulty with humor and joy and a sense of passion for music. Lady Sings the Blues struggles to find that balance, and it makes for a difficult watch. The film does have a couple of major elements going for it. The cast and a killer soundtrack are able to win over audiences again and again. Ross's performance of Holiday is incredible, made all the more exciting because it is her first film. It is truly difficult to tell where one singer ends and another begins. Of course, a full transformation would be necessary to convince audiences the two women are one and the same. The supporting cast wasn't lacking either. In addition to an appearance from The Shining Scatman Crothers, the second and third build actors appearing in the film are Billy Dee Williams and a young Richard Pryor. No one comes close to outshining Ross, but their appearances spice up the film. Williams, especially, is in full charmer mode during his first meeting with Ross's holiday. <laughs> you know, you, you, yeah, I, I never met nobody like you before. You know, you kind of make me uh, speechless. I, really? I mean, yeah, I mean, really. Right. I don't know what to do with myself. Like you said, I don't even know what to do with my hands and everything. You know, uh, you sure have pretty teeth when you smile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, that, you know. That dress. I want to tell you about that dress. That dress brings out the best tones in your skin. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like dancing? 
Despite its flaws, the film was a solid box office hit, grossing about $19 million and becoming the ninth highest grossing film of the year. For Ross, it was an immediate start to her career as a film star. She was nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars for her performance, while the movie's soundtrack was the fifth best-selling pop album of 1973. The whole time I watched Lady Sings the Blues, all I could wonder was what exactly was this film trying to accomplish. It's always difficult to separate art and commerce when you're talking about movies. It's a question that dogs this entire genre of movie from here on out. You could argue that the film's entire purpose was just to share the life of Billie Holiday with a new audience 30 years later. Once you bring Ross into the role, though, things get kind of messy. Was the film leveraging Ross's stardom to get made, to bring a level of credibility to the production? Was Ross's casting overshadowing Billie Holiday herself? To be clear, even the most cynical read on Hollywood production doesn't place any of it on Diana Ross. She wanted to be an actress, and starring in a film about a legendary, influential singer was the perfect role to kick off her career. This is a question about producers, something we'll have to look at closely on each film. What were the creators and the funders of any project trying to get out of it? Lady Sings the Blues doesn't provide definitive answers to this question, but then again, it did start the genre, so maybe that's unfair to expect. If anything, the darkness and despair that radiates from the life of its subject only makes it more confusing. The film certainly loves Holiday, but it does so in a way that emphasizes all of her struggles, losses, and personal defeats, with very few of her wins on display. I walk away from this film feeling no closer to understanding Holiday's actions. Hell, the audience discovers her drug use alongside Williams' character and not with Holiday, which is crazy since the artist takes drugs for the first time and then spirals out of control scenes are now mandatory in these movies. Instead, Lady keeps the pain at arm's length. You can look at Billie Holiday, you can listen to Billie Holiday, but you'll never get to know her or understand her actions. All you can do is take note of the history and listen to her sing into the night. Regardless of its strengths and weaknesses as a film, Lady Sings the Blues was successful enough to kickstart Diana Ross's career as a Hollywood star. It didn't immediately light rock star biopics on fire in Hollywood, though. Despite an Oscar nomination for Diana Ross, Hollywood was and is bad at paying attention to cinema with black actors. Instead, it would take another six years for Hollywood to start leaning into rock star biopics. It would need a face that immediately resonates with the growing white suburbs. The Buddy Holly story. It doesn't have the world's most exciting title, but it was a major hit when it arrived in cinemas in 1978, grossing its budget several times over and picking up an Oscar for its score. The film found success through its performances, particularly with Gary Busey as Holly. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel both credited Busey for stealing the show, while Vincent Canby, the same man who had praised Diana Ross's performance while hating that film, did the exact same thing here, referring to the movie as shapeless and bland and a one-man show. This is something else to keep in mind as the pattern emerges. Rock stars make great leading roles for up-and-coming actors. Before we go any deeper on Holly, let's take a step back. 
Rock music existed in cinema either as a soundtrack to a movie or in documentary formats. Especially throughout the 1970s, concert films had become must-see events, with directors like Martin Scorsese lending their talent to the craft. Films like The Last Waltz and Give Me Shelter are considered some of the best the genre has to offer. Whether you were taken behind the scenes of the final performance by the band, or watching the death of a young Stones fan at the peak of the band's popularity, concert films had cemented themselves as essential viewing for rock fans. Also, they didn't make any money. Seriously, neither film managed to gross more than $500,000. And in general, no one really cares about the Best Documentary Oscar winner. The Buddy Holly story was far from the first film to feature rock music, but it was one of the earliest films to tell the actual story of a rock star. And it grossed a profit. It was also one of the first films to tell the story of a star that had died in a highly publicized accident in a post-television era. Whereas Lady Sings the Blues and Billie Holiday fades quietly into the night, Buddy Holly's life reaches a tragic and abrupt end, one that its suburban audience knew very well. I'm scared. You're scared of what? About going out on the road without the crickets. Played with them all my life. I grew up playing with them. I wrote my first songs with them, the hits. I don't mind bombing with them, but I can't stand the thought of going out and falling on my ass without them. I know how much you miss them, but you don't need them for your music. Where would you be today? Right now. If you'd let your fear stop you. Not only for the parents for which Holly was the soundtrack of their youth, but the kids too, since Holly's death, commonly known as the day the music died, is memorialized in Don McLean's American Pie only six years earlier. The film's narrative is straightforward following Holly and his bandmates as they find success in the music industry. Holly meets his future wife, gains success at the cost of interpersonal relationships, and ultimately dies in a plane crash with three other musicians on tour. It utilizes the biopic playbook, including getting plenty of facts wrong, from the guitar Holly played to the complete omission of Holly's producer, Norman Petty. Did it matter that Buddy Holly was doing the same thing Lady Sings the Blues did six years earlier? The film was actually less successful at the box office when comparing ticket sales, but with a significantly smaller budget, Buddy Holly managed to make a much higher profit. It featured a successful soundtrack album that was recently re-released on vinyl in 2020. And it actually won an Oscar for its score, while picking up a nomination for Gary Busey's lead performance. It also starred a white actor as a white artist rather than a black musician as a black artist, which likely drew more attention from top producers in Hollywood. The Buddy Holly story is enough of a success to immediately be followed up with a string of releases throughout the 80s and 90s. It wasn't a complete flood of the market, but every few years, you'd stumble into a new rock star biopic at your local theater. Sid and Nancy, the Bomba, What's Love Got to Do With It? Rock music was here to stay, and Hollywood loves finding a safe and reliable trend to follow. That's all without mentioning the merchandising. Oh boy, the merchandising. A standard biopic about a scientist or a teacher or a civil rights leader might garner some Oscar attention and a profit, but manufacturing rock star biopics? Now that's a financial win from every angle. You have ticket sales, of course. That's an even easier sell than with historical figures. Rock stars are part of pop culture. The name recognition is already there. Then you have the music. Records, tapes, 8-tracks, CDs. These movie soundtracks allow you to resell already recorded music back to consumers. 
Some of the fans of these artists already own these songs in other collections, but they don't have the official movie soundtrack. And for those who entered the audience without a clue of who the artist was, well, you've just found yourself a new fan. You might think this phenomenon would die off with the Switch to streaming in the 2010s, but no. Bohemian Rhapsody's movie soundtrack gave the band its highest charting album in nearly four decades. Clearly, the sales of albums for old fans and newcomers alike never quite died. This steady trickle of rock star biopics happens throughout the 80s before it gets supercharged in the 90s. Historical biopics were sweeping the Oscars, collecting nomination after nomination, win after win. In 1993, Schindler's List scored big, with 12 nominations and 7 wins. The next year, Quiz Show gets nominated for four Oscars, though it loses out to Forrest Gump, which itself relentlessly pimps nostalgia. 1995 brings us Braveheart and Apollo 13, 1996 sees the release of Shine, and 1997 features Spielberg's spiritual follow-up to Schindler's List in Amistad. The biopic had become a ticket for Oscar gold for any producer, director, screenwriter, or actor. All they would have to do is cash it in. Hollywood is chasing prestige status. Rock stars might bring in audiences, but they aren't classy, and they weren't proven material for awards. It's not until an unexpected drama, loosely based on its actor's rise to fame, manages to gross nearly $250 million at the box office that producers notice the cash cow waiting in the wings. A critical darling. A hit movie soundtrack during the decay of such novelties. A ton of money. It all lines up in one single hit with an undeniable star. Look, if you had one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it? Just let it slip. Yo. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy, there's vomit on his sweat. You don't have to be a detective to find out what Eminem's childhood home looked like. You don't even have to travel to Detroit, actually. Just take a trip to your local record store, or actually just open up Spotify on your phone, and you can see what it's looked like throughout the years. It's found on the album covers for two of his most popular releases, the Marshall Mathers LP and its sequel, LP2. On the original 2000 record, he's sitting on the front porch on the 2013 album, He's Nowhere to be Seen. No matter the state and shape of the house, which has clearly deteriorated by the time Eminem dropped LP2, anyone looking at these photos knows he's a man who came from humble beginnings. It's always been a statement of where he's from, a white kid from Detroit drawn to an art form dominated by black voices. You can make plenty of critiques of Eminem as a musician, and don't worry, people have. But it's downright false to question his humble origins. The personal pain that dots Eminem's massively popular early albums is nearly identical to the main character of 8 Mile, another white kid living in Detroit who dreamed of becoming a rapper. Jimmy Smith Jr. is broke, working a dead-end job at a factory without much hope for a better life. His girlfriend just broke up with him, he's back living in the trailer park he grew up in with his mom, and he couldn't get over a serious case of stage fright. To Jimmy, it didn't matter how much passion or strength or talent he had. 
he's stuck at the bottom, forced to work his way through luck and skill to earn any semblance of respect from the music community he wants to join. All right, next up is my boy, Bunny Rabbit. Hey, I can talk all that to you if you want to, but I'm telling you, I vouch for this motherfucker right here. He's a genius, man, a motherfucking genius. Get that shit, 45 seconds, Rabbit. DJ, kick it. By the time of the Marshall Mathers LP, Eminem has come a long way from that house on the cover. 20 years later, you might not remember just how big of an album it was. Y'all act like you never seen a white person before. Jaws all on the floor like Pam, like Tommy just burst in the door. We started whooping her ass first than before they first were It debuted at number one on Billboard, selling nearly two million copies in his first week alone. It's still the fourth fastest selling album of all time, beaten only by two NSYNC releases and Adele's 25. Taylor Swift, Britney Spears, and Lady Gaga all tried and failed to top his success. Name your favorite current super successful artist. Yeah, them too. It was such a hit with kids, the government intervened. The wife of the then-Vice President Lynn Cheney brought up the album during a Senate hearing that fall, accusing Eminem for advocating for murder and rape and about choking women so he can hear their screams. And certainly, no one is going to call Eminem a family-friendly performer. But for a culture war to center around one single performer, even 20 years ago, proves just how gigantic his stardom had become. As with any performer of his status, a biopic was destined to enter production. Less than expected, however, was when the film would enter production. It usually takes decades of an artist's inspiration, not to mention singles, album sales, hit tours, and merchandise, to get a biopic in theaters. Eminem managed to get his up and running a month after Marshall Mathers' LP hit stores, and for one simple reason. It isn't a biopic. Well, technically it isn't, but I'll get to that in a second. Marshall Mathers, Eminem's real name, isn't a character. Instead, Jimmy Smith Jr., B-Rabbit for short, is the stand-in, a character living in Detroit in 1995 as he scraped by for the sake of his family and dreamt of becoming a real MC. Okay, so let's get back to the is this a rock star biopic or not question. I can hear you now. 8 Mile can't be called a biopic. It doesn't tell the story of Eminem's rise through the world of hip-hop. And you would be right if you weren't so wrong. A rock star biopic doesn't have to be biographical. I know what you're thinking. That doesn't make any sense. But hear me out. Fima Clay, a French term for film with a key, is a movie that tells a real-life story while operating behind a facade of fiction. Basically, it's pulling elements from the real lives of real people all disguised behind a fake character. This happens all the time in cinema, in ways you probably don't even know. Sure, you probably knew that The Devil Wears Prada is not so secretly about Anna Wintour, but did you know that Casino was actually about a real-life gambler? Did you know Saving Private Ryan was loosely based on a group of four Irish-American brothers who fought in the war and, on a personal level, were raised literally 20 minutes from where I grew up? 
Magnolia was inspired by the director's father. All Good Things is actually about Robert Durst, and even Citizen Kane combines the life stories of William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. And of course, Eight Mile isn't the first musical production to do this. Bill Condon's adaptation of the 80s musical Dreamgirls tells the history of Motown and the Supremes. That's right, Diana Ross and all. But you won't hear her name mentioned once. Watch that story with even the smallest amount of attention, and I think you'll figure out who Beyonce is playing. Yes, Diana Ross got the biopic treatment without her name being mentioned. But I wonder how big Dreamgirls would have been if they could have used actual Supremes music. And 8 Mile stops well short of any of those movies. If you just swapped out a character named B-Rabbit for a character named Marshall Mathers, and that was the only change you made, you wouldn't even question whether or not this was a biopic. Everyone would accept it for what it already is, a movie adaptation following the early days of Eminem's career. It doesn't matter whether he's found living in a trailer park or a rundown house, whether Eminem actually got arrested for shooting a cop car with a paintball gun, whether he was working in an automotive factory or as a short-line cook. Here is my point. Eight Mile is the other side of the coin of Lady Sings the Blues, even when the artist's name actually appears above the marquee. Do you really think Freddie Mercury and the rest of Queen got up in each other's faces before the grooving bass lines of Another One Bites the Dust calmed them down enough to rock out? Do you think the members of NWA really delivered a by Felicia punchline in a hotel 25 years before that meme even existed? The audience accepts the realities of any rock star biopic. And that's no different with 8 Mile or Lady Sings the Blues. But unlike Lady, 8 Mile loves its main character. We start the film alone with B-Rabbit in a bathroom, and it takes several minutes before another character even enters the story. As an audience, we're with him every step of the way, through every struggle and victory, his relationship with Alex and his mom and Cheddar Bob. Eminem spends so much time on screen, and his character of B-Rabbit is so close to the public perception of Eminem's youth that the division between the two melts away on screen. Of course, it goes well beyond the performer himself. 8 Mile weaves two of the most famous pieces of lore regarding Eminem into the story, his relationship with his mom and his girlfriend. Kim Basinger portrays B-Rabbit's mom as an obvious stand-in for Eminem's own. The real-life lawsuit saga between the real Eminem and Debbie Mathers played out in court and MTV. There's no shortage of stories surrounding the poor upbringing his mom provided him during his childhood, and Basinger's performance delivers just a slice of what this hell must have been. She's sleeping with someone who went to school with her son, ignoring her younger daughter Lily, and nearly getting the entire family evicted from their trailer. That's nothing compared to the elements of Eminem's love life. In the film, his girlfriend Alex is portrayed by Brittany Murphy. The two meet at B-Rabbit's factory, quickly falling for one another before she hooks up with another guy. There's drama, violence, anger, frustration, and a clean split between the two, and it's immediately obvious what the film is doing here. Alex serves as a stand-in for Kim, a recognizable name to any Eminem fan and probably even people who don't like Eminem. The rapper's ex-wife is a constant villain in his music, dating back to the Slim Shady LP in 1997. 
Through his lyrics, Eminem has killed Kim, buried her body, shamed her for drug abuse and infidelity, gotten a tattoo of her, kissed her, and said he'd do anything for her. It's a complicated relationship, and it's one that absolutely had to be an 8 Mile. Besides his mom, Debbie, and his ex-wife, Kim, there is only one character that is mentioned throughout all of Eminem's early music, his young daughter, Haley. And in 8 Mile, it is no coincidence that Jimmy has a small girl to worry about named Lily. The only difference in the movie, it's his little sister and not his daughter. Unlike other artists, Eminem's lyrics are unusually confessional, especially in his first couple of albums. He's not making allusions or laying clues about who he's talking about. He's using first names, point blank, in all of those songs. He's rapping about Kim and about Debbie and about Haley, both as characters in his own songs and as real people. We don't have to wonder whether or not these things happened. We know they happened because Eminem told us they happened. Even his success in the industry is pulled into focus. Though the film uses his pre-music experiences with adulthood, rap battles at a shelter, menial jobs with bosses who don't like him, it's also very specifically placed in 1995. That was a big year for Eminem, his first taste of success in the music industry. He recorded and released his first album, Infinite, a record that all but his biggest fans have likely never heard of. It's impossible to find prints of Infinite these days, though if you know where to look online, you can get a taste of his early sound. By setting the film in 1995, 8 Mile is tying together its star and character in a single time period that completely changed their respective lives. At the end of the movie, we don't really know what happens to Beat Rabbit. He walks away into the night, having proven himself as a rapper, just as Eminem did when he released Infinite. While the success of 8 Mile would launch the modern wave of the rockstar biopic genre, it doesn't adhere to what we know of as the traditional playbook. At minimum, a traditional rockstar biopic has to cover several years of a person's life, often spanning decades as an artist's career rises and falls, ebbs and flows. Eventually, this formula would go on to curse the genre, transforming it into bloated, overstuffed vanity projects. But we aren't there yet. 8 Mile takes place in the span of, at most, a few weeks. It's winter for nearly the entire film, as B-Rabbit huddles for warmth on his bus route. There's no record signing, no debut concert. It's a story about a chapter in a person's life. A path that very few biopics choose to follow. Because this film enters production right as his second major album is released, 8 Mile is really only able to follow two-thirds of what the usual rockstar biopic script allows for. Even as Eminem begins to blow up, he's nowhere near the popularity of most other rockstars who received movies over the last 30 years. He's a guy with a couple of hits and a growing sense of controversy, but still very clearly at the start of his career. But okay, so if we've established that 8 Mile is a rockstar biopic, at least for the sake of this podcast, there's one more element in the film worth touching on, and we've been focusing so closely on the facts of Eminem's life that you probably forgot I hadn't even brought it up. The music. 8 Mile isn't a musical by any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly not Dreamgirls, and it's not even Lady Sings the Blues. Lose Yourself, the mega hit that comes from this film's success as Eminem's biggest success story, isn't even played in full 
until the credits roll. Instead, 8 Mile strips everything back, focusing on rap battles, spoken verses, and the process of crafting lyrics to let the audience inside the mind of Eminem. It's an interesting approach, best exemplified early on in the film when B-Rabbit's thoughts are heard over a beat while he's on a bus. The character, and Eminem, are pulling inspiration from everything around him, buildings and people and the city of Detroit. Later in the film, he watches his kid sister Lily while crafting the early framework of what will become Lose Yourself. It's a song Eminem wrote on set between takes, and watching the film back nearly 20 years later, you have to appreciate just how private and intimate it feels. It's like watching Van Gogh paint. It feels like cheating. In order to fill the void left by the lack of traditional performances, 8 Mile uses rap battles to clue the audience into this culture. There are a ton of battles in this film, from the shelter to alleyways and even by the lunch truck at B-Rabbit's work. Rappers like Exhibit, Obi Trice, and Proof, who was the inspiration for Mackay Pfeiffer's future in the film, make cameo appearances, and it feels like the film is honoring some of his closest contemporaries at the time. The final scene at the shelter, where B-Rabbit destroys the New World Order, feels exactly like the big concert scene in Ladies Sings the Blues. It might not be pop, R&B, or rock, but 8 Mile knows the template it's working in. In fact, 8 Mile set the groundwork for something that wouldn't be proven correct for more than a decade after its release. Rap, if not black entertainment in general, brought this genre of filmmaking to its heights. And when an overabundance of these films would eventually swallow rockstar biopics whole in the late 2000s, it was black artists and rap that would eventually bring it back to life. But here is the biggest reason why 8 Mile defines the modern wave of the rockstar biopic. The film was an undeniable success at the box office, grossing nearly $250 million worldwide on a budget under $50 million. It was nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars for Lose Yourself, which it later won, and landed on several critic year-end lists. This was a new peak for the genre, but in Hollywood's eyes, it was only just beginning. While the existence of 8 Mile would complicate a traditional biopic from ever getting made about Eminem, it stands as something greater. It keeps its story grounded and small, 
never escaping the small house on the front of the Marshall Mathers LP. Because at the end of the day, that is Eminem's story. Not the controversy surrounding his lyrics about his ex-wife, not the circus in Congress gravitating towards an easy target, and to a degree, not even his battle with addiction. Eminem's story is one of escape, triumph, and ever-flowing lyrics. 8 Mile is a story about the musical journey, and not its much less interesting destination. And that's the formula. The catalog of Billie Holiday with the character work of 8 Mile. Overcast the side roles, honor the artist. But no matter what, play the hits. The financial and critical success of 8 Mile paved the way for the final piece of the puzzle to fall into place. Best in the world acting talent. Megawatt stars looking for breakout, mainstream, commercially viable Oscar bait. So leave it to Hollywood to follow it up with not one, but two of the most traditional rock star biopics to be released in the last 20 years. Films so popular and successful, so boxed in by a decades-old mold that they'd nearly kill the genre they were propping up with cash infusions and awards. Next time, we examine the two greatest examples of the genre's success and the parody that almost ended rock star biopics forever because it knew them so well. Ray, walk the line and walk hard. Like the main characters they chronicle, the genre itself achieves insane success before totally self-destructing. I keep a close watch on this part of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Don't Explain is written and edited by and starring Will Saddleberg and executive produced by Justin Robert Young. Credit to the Diana Ross Project, The Hollywood Reporter, and Rolling Stone Magazine, which, along with other contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archived video, made for the bulk of our research. Dog and Pony Show Audio.